Cairo, Seattle. It's time to get schooled with a professor, Sean Clayton. And welcome to Schooled with a Professor. And, of course, I'll tell you what. I mean, I've been covering this league now for, what, 48 years, almost five decades. And the stuff that we're witnessing right now is some of the weirdest stuff I've ever seen. And so Tuesday was reporting day. And without question, it was the craziest, unusual uh, reporting day I've ever witnessed. I mean, you had the uh, positive test, which, of course, is expected. You figured that even at 5%, there's going to be maybe over 100 guys that are going to test positive. So we know that's going on, and there's going to be more testing here in the next couple of days. Then, of course, the opt-outs were so strange with the 29 guys that have opted out of their contracts, including some, some big players. So let's kind of go through this because I know Bob Glauber from Newsday, also the uh, head of the Pro Football Writers Association, Association joins us here on Schooled with the Professor, and I don't know, was this as weird of a reporting day that you've ever witnessed? Oh, by far, John. I mean, look, we're, we're, living, we're living in something that hasn't happened in 100 years, and um, everything is just different about our entire world. So reporting day at training camp, normally that's such a day of great optimism. The players come in, you know, you, you meet with them, you, you're standing under the sun, sweating like crazy, listening to these guys talk about how, how you know lucky they are to be doing what they're doing, how optimistic they are, they're talking about going to the Super Bowl. And now, you know, they're, they're walking into these facilities just to get tested, wearing masks, and, and walking out and just awaiting those tests. they got to do it three, three days and three straight times negative tests. Um, and, you know, then they can go in to start conditioning, and then in a couple of weeks they'll start to actually do football practices. So, yeah. Unprecedented times, John, and, you know, I think weird and unusual and, you know, downright a you know, little little anxiety, well, very much anxiety-producing is, is the way this thing is going to go. Yeah, because, I mean, really, ultimately, it's going to come down to the players and the family to make this thing work. Because I think mm-hmm. that uh, the protocols are there that, uh, you know, you've got basically three bubbles. I mean, you've got the team headquarters, which, of course, that can be sanitized, and, you know, they can control that. Uh, you'll have the team hotel, which will accommodate, uh, you know, the rookies and a bunch of guys like that. And, of course, where the, the, the tough part's going to be if anybody goes out. And if they mm-hmm. do, that's where the risk is. And, of course, and of course, you know that, uh, like Andrew Woodworth told the story last week, that uh, here's one of his family members, one of his kids went out, had lunch with somebody, came back, and Whitworth, his wife, and seven other people in the family, including the father-in-law, who ended up having to go to the hospital, they got infected. And so I, I just have to think that, you know, particularly what we saw with the uh, Miami Marlins, that what ends mm-hmm. up happening is that it gives coaches and general managers and maybe team leaders to go to the players and say, listen, we saw what happened with the Marlins. We can't let this happen to us. You're letting us down as teammates. You're letting us down as players, and you're hurting yourself and your family. But will they listen? Yeah, that's the question, John. Will they listen? And, you know, you're talking about young athletes uh, in the physical prime of their lives, and they're they're very active. People are very social, uh, you know, a lot of times, and it's going to be a major adjustment, and you know, all it takes is one slip-up. That that story that Andrew Whitworth told us the other day was just really staggering and, and mind-blowing. That you know, it's just such a a dangerous time we're living in, and you have to be careful. And you're right about the bubbles. I mean, they, they they're doing whatever they possibly can with these protocols. I think the facilities are going to be in good shape. The practice fields, the hotels, the stadiums when they when they have the games in front of no fans. 
But, you know, it, it's going to be up to the players inside those bubbles to not make reckless decisions on their on their own time. And, you know, we were talking to Joe Douglas, the general manager of the, of the Jets, who was talking about the Jamal uh, Adams trade to the Seahawks the other day, and, you know, he... He mentioned, and I found it interesting that he specifically mentioned the part about the players' behavior when they're away from the facility. And that's, I think, what's going to keep coaches and general managers and and team executives up at night worrying about that because that can change the whole dynamic for one team, for another team, and then ultimately for the league. So, you know, this is a high degree of difficulty there they're going through here, and and they're going to hope for the best. But you have to expect that there are going to be some – some hiccups and maybe some some things that are bigger than that along the way that theoretically can can imperil the season. Yeah, no doubt, and that's but what I thought was interesting because I didn't think the players would sign off on this is some of the restrictions that are there. Like for example, uh, you know, a player cannot go into a bar. All he can mm-hmm. do is take pickup out of a bar. I didn't know that they would agree to that. You're not allowed to go to a concert you really can't go to anything i guess basically where there's going to be more than 15 people and then the big one is a player is not allowed to go to a sporting event so that means patrick mahomes just bought a portion of the kansas city royals and he can't go to a live game yeah yeah i mean listen these are very restrictive rules and you're right it is a little surprising that that the NFLPA would would sign off on that, but I but I do think that that speaks to the seriousness of the situation, and they are mindful that you know the the longer they can keep a season alive, if they can go through an entire season, it benefits their members because they're going to get all their money, uh, the ones who are playing. So, you know, it's it's a high wire act, and the fact that the NFLPA signed off on these, and knowing that their constituents are in a in a, in a category that, you know, p- players go out. I and mean, there's nothing wrong with that. They're young men who, you know, they're, they're, they're having the time of their lives, or they should be. But life's different now, and, you know, they have to be mindful of it. And I think teams will try to do their best to police their own locker rooms to make sure uh, that guys stay within the protocols so they can have a season and they can make their money and take care of their families. And, and you know, oh, by the way, they're playing a sport that they love, that they've been playing since kids, and and they want to be able to kind of preserve that and be able to do that for an entire season. This is this is going to be a huge challenge. I don't I don't know if they can pull it off, but uh, let's certainly hope so. I tell you what though, one thing that I know that the union, the NFL Players Association takes a lot of criticism for a lot of things, but I think that uh, you know, they have been ahead of the game in many ways as far as player safety. You know, for example, the uh, owners and coaches, they wanted to have a little mini camp at the end of June when uh, you know, things were starting to, you know, spike up a little bit and good mm-hmm. thing that they didn't. Then of course, uh, they pushed for no preseason games and it would have been absolutely ridiculous to play preseason games with no fans in the stands, no revenue basically for the owners and the players. And it's like, uh, you know, they were wise to be able to do that. And then, of course, to have the ramp-up period. Now, maybe that's a little longer than it should be, but still, it this is going to be like we saw in 2011, uh, a year where, you know, the latest slip is going to cause ACL tears. Uh, you're going to have, you know, a, 20% increase in Achilles tears. There was a 44% increase in hamstring tears back in 2011 when there was no off-season program because of the holdouts. So all those things combined, I think the players have been actually okay on this stuff. I totally agree with you, John. And I think they've been, you know, they've taken some criticism for being careful. But, man, you can't be too careful in this environment. And throw in the fact that they pushed for and got 
testing every day for the, at least the first two weeks of, of training camp. And if the, if the uh, level of positivity falls below 5%, then it becomes every other day. And they were adamant about that one. That makes a lot of sense. And they basically got everything that they asked for you know, by, from the owners in terms of the player safety thing. And I, I, and I do give them a lot of credit for that. They were smart. They were deliberate. And like J.C. Treder, the NFLPA president, uh, said the other day, he says, listen, we're, you know, the idea is not, not only for us to play, but it's, it's the idea for us to play the entire season, not just early, but the whole thing. So I think they had a, a good eye toward the long-term impact of this, and this, this was, there was some smart decision-making on the part of the players, and the owners listened. And, and did as they asked, and I think it was the right move uh, for all people concerned. We'll get into the uh, more of this, but I wanted to get to the Jamal Adams trade because it's such a big one here. Uh, from what you talked to in Joe Douglas and from what you've looked at from watching him play uh, and you saw what the cost was, it was pretty costly. What was your uh, evaluation of Jamal Adams for two number ones, a three, and a uh, Bradley McDougal, and a four that comes back to Seattle in 2022? Oh, that trade was a win. That trade was a win for the Jets. That trade was a win for the Seahawks. So classic case of win-win. And, and, and here's why. The Jets, to get two almost quarterback compensation, almost quarterback compensation for a safety, a player who was obviously unhappy with his contract, didn't want to be there, to have no leverage in potentially no leverage in trade talks for Joe Douglas to get two first-round picks and then some, including a third-rounder, and he gets a starting safety in Bradley McDougal. Um, that, I think, was a, was a great deal for Joe Douglas, kind of weighing the landscape. Look, you don't want to let go of your best players. I mean, the, the, the league and the salary cap is designed where you can keep select players if you value them. But it got so contentious, and it got to the point where the Jets realized that this was not going to work out with Jamal Adams, and Joe Douglas got as good um, a return on that trade for a position that is not considered premium among all teams in the NFL. Now, why is it a win for the Seahawks? Well, listen, this team is, is obviously close, and this is like a one-piece-away type situation that Super Bowl contending teams find themselves in. John Schneider and Pete Carroll are probably two of the most aggressive guys in, in football. The way they operate, they're 95 miles an hour all the time. And this was um, an act of, of an aggressive general manager and a coach to solidify a defense that, you know, is, is, is good and, and can be very good, but I think Adams can make him even better. So they get a player. I mean, look, I've seen Jamal Adams' his first three seasons. He's been terrific. I mean, the guy is he's improved every year. He's a great tackler. You can use him in blitz, uh, blitz packages. And – to have him in the Cam Chancellor role, he can be that and then some, right? So that's a perfect spot defensively for the Seahawks. The, the, the one area that concerns me a little bit with Jamal Adams, and, you know, we'll have to see if this happens over time, but, you know, three, three seasons, a lot of tackles, a lot of sacks, um, two interceptions. You know, he played free safety for the Jets. He's going to be strong for the Seahawks, you know, for the most part. So that, that, that's a little bit of a concern. And, and I think you talk to people around the league, you, you want to see a little bit more production there. You know, Ed Reed and Ronnie Lott were ball-hawking safeties who went to the Hall of Fame. Easily was, you know, he, he was 
in that room, not quite a, a Ronnie Lott uh, or an Ed Reed, but you want your safety to kind of you know, Jamal Adams is around the ball, but he doesn't get the ball all the time. So that's just my one uh, little quibble with um, the resume there. Um, that can change over time, and, and he's really with a defensive coach who loves – look, Pete Carroll is a DB's coach at heart, and uh, he, he came up that way in the NFL. So he will do great things with Jamal Adams. And I, I, I do think both teams will benefit by this in a pretty big way. And see, the thinking that Seattle had, uh, which is you know maybe a little bit different, is the evolution of the game itself. And Matt Rule from the Carolina Panthers kind of brought this up, is that now in this football game with spread offenses uh, mm-hmm. that you're now incorporating from college with uh, mobile quarterbacks, you need a positionless player. And Jamal Adams might be one of the best at that because he can play linebacker if necessary. He can cover a tight end if necessary. He can rush the quarterback. He had six sacks last year. And he can also play slot corner, which, of course, you need that versatility because there's there's so many things with mobile quarterbacks, and particularly in a division where uh, you have you know the two great running game styles with uh, you know Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco and Sean McVay with the Rams, and then you have Kyler Murray down in Arizona with the spread offense at Cliff Kingsbury, in a lot of ways, you know, there's a revamping and a revitalizing of a safety position, even if it's in the box. Mm-hmm. Yes, and it's a good point, John, and it's true. So, you know, this is a very adaptable league, and it's, um, it's a changing league, and um, it, it react, defenses react to what offenses are doing and mm-hmm. vice versa, um, and that's where it's at right now. So, you know, when I said some teams don't value the safety position as much as others, I mean, it's true. So now the teams that are a little bit more progressive do value it. You know, Baltimore is a big team. Uh, you know, with safety play, San Diego, uh, Los Angeles. Oops, I caught myself. There was that's the first time. It's always going to be San Diego. Yep. But the Los Angeles Chargers are like to do that. So, and I think that the Seahawks have really always been a, 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 a safety-centric defense. Um, you know, yeah, you had Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor. You know, they were the heart of the Legion of Boom. Um, uh, you know, along with Sherman, uh, with great quarterback play. But the safeties—it's really important, and it is an all-over-the-field kind of game right now. You're right, um, and and Adams can be that guy. He's he's all over it, and he goes a million miles an hour. So I'd, I'd be curious to see who has a higher um, level of who, who's got a higher motor, Jamal Adams, Pete Carroll, or John Schneider. It's a good competition because yeah, it might be all Pete. those guys are just, <laughs> just, you know, all out all the time. And, and that's the way Pete Carroll loves it. And that's the way John Schneider likes his roster to be. And that's certainly the way that Jamal Adams likes to play football. He's, he's, he's all over it. Now, this may sound strange, but uh, part of the reason that they're willing to give up so much, and I know this is not just Seattle, but I talked to another general manager about that and a couple of general managers, and what they said is that uh, drafting the next two years is going to be very strange, particularly mm-hmm. if you're drafting as a playoff team. You know, if a playoff team, because I, I chart it every year on my worksheets uh, on uh, Excel. It's like, okay, you have a 75% failure rate between 21 and 32, and very few guys make it to the, uh, you know, the fifth-year option to get claimed. Now, again, uh, that's that's just the reality because they got second-round grades, and of course, to get a Jamal Adams, now you're getting a top-six pick. You don't get those opportunities. But the thinking is, at the moment, there's only eight conferences in the FCS that are, at, at the moment, scheduled to try to play this year. Mm-hmm. And that means all the other players that might opt out that are going to be playing in the spring, 
you have nothing on them for 2000 except 2019 film and you haven't won't have a chance to visit with them and so because of that uh you know, there's probably going to end up being more mistakes particularly next year and maybe the year after that that it's going to be all over the place and so mm-hmm. if you're drafting as a playoff team it might be tough yeah and that's a really interesting and good point john in in this respect and, and that's why John Schneider might not have worried so much about that it's two number ones, right? I mean, it looks like a lot. And it is a lot. It's, it's, it's valuable draft capital. Now, Joe Douglas, um, I asked him that question on, on our call with him on Monday, that, you know, because of the uncertainty of college football, what does that 2021 draft pick look like? Because you might not, you might not be able to see a player. They just might not have football. And he said, you know, totally, totally good you know, point, and even before the trade was made, uh, Joe Douglas went back in, uh, to his scouts and said, look, this thing's going to happen most likely, so I want you to be alert to it. We have to start looking now, um, and that's addressing that very question. I even asked him if he thought about maybe delaying the first-round compensation to, say, 22 and 23, right, mm-hmm. because – in case there is no football this year, you don't have to worry about that evaluation process. You know, you're kind of flying blind there. And, um, you know, they obviously didn't go for that. This is a more immediate um, return on that. But it's something to be said. And I think that one of the stories that we're going to be writing next combine, if we are lucky enough to go to the combine or before next year's draft, John, is that the challenges of trying to evaluate the 2021 draft class might be, um, as big as as any, because of the potential lack of film and the potential lack of activity among most college football programs. And then, kind of wrapping it up here is like uh, going back to the CBA and the negotiation with the players. And that I was kind of surprised that the you know because I think the mission was to try to get the cap up to 198.2, and now it very well might stay near the floor. It'll grow a little bit better than 175 million dollars. But you have more than half the teams right now with serious cap issues for next year, and it got even mm-hmm. tougher with the opt-outs, the 29 opt-outs, because now you're moving more contracts into next year. Uh, you're going to see probably, you know, because I know that Jason Fitzgerald did a great thing on Over the Cap saying that if you have 21% in your dead money, and that's basically going to be $35 million around that number next year, you don't make the playoffs. He goes, but 213, he went back and saw that, uh, you know, there was 0 for 13 for teams with 21% or more in dead money on the cap. And you're going to have more teams like that, and you're going to see a lot of playoff teams bite the dust. Well, yeah, I mean, this is going to have to be some, there's going to have to be some creative cap management moving forward, especially next year. Um, but I, I do think, John, that, you know, if the TV money is better, I think that it can go over that $175 million ceiling, and, or the, the floor, rather. And I think that they got to, to get to 175 was, I think, pretty important. Um, it's not perfect, right? And it's certainly a lot less than this year, but it's not as bad as, um, what the owners initially wanted, you know, they were they were looking at 165, maybe even lower. So at least you have some semblance of some semblance of normalcy there, and you're going to have to make some tough decisions. It will be easy to cut the you know the high salary guys who are unproductive. It, it always is, um, and there will be no brainer decisions there. But it's going to be those mid level guys who are really valuable to your team, but that you're not going to be able to afford 
that's what's going to cut into the, the, those playoff teams and, and their ability to, to field representative teams next year. So, I, you know, I, I think there's, there are a lot of smart people in this league, and, and guys will figure it out and, you know, maybe spreading it over future years and be able to kind of have a, you know, a, a decent semblance of a team next year. So well, let's just hope that that cap goes up um, to a, a more comfortable range. Bob Glaber, how can uh, everybody follow and read what you've got and follow what you do? Well, work for Newsday, newsday.com. Come on over. And then I tweet at, at Bob Glauber, B-O-B-G-L-A-U-B-E-R. And occasionally I'm lucky enough to talk on the phone with John Clayton. So those are, those are my three three things. Hey, well, thank you for educating us on Schooled with the Professor and have yourself a safe time. And let's get ready for camp and actually watching some things. Yeah, sounds good, John. Really enjoyed it. Enjoyed talking and you stay safe and my best to everybody out there. And that does it for this week's podcast. In between episodes, you can follow me on Twitter at Clayton ESPN. If you enjoy these weekly one-on-one conversations, consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time on Schooled with the Professor.